suddenly this rock bottom that I thought I was looked like Disneyland because actually I was about to go to another rock bottom. I mean, literally everything I knew to be real, everything that I that I uh, thought was my solid ground was gone. And I was like, I just need something that reminds me of who I am. And so somehow I came up with this idea of like, what if I just went surfing for a hundred days in a row? You know, in, in that period of time when I was doing that 100 days of surfing, I probably didn't really have trust in anything else, <laughs> you know. But I knew that this one thing, this one connection, this one relationship with the sea was something that would always be there and could always be depended on. Welcome to The Ocean State of Mind, a podcast about what the ocean can teach us right now. The Ocean State of Mind is a proud project of the Ocean Foundation. I'm your host, Damian Evans. Today, we have my good friend, Lindsay Hawkin. She's an ocean advocate, brand strategist, and co-founder of the creative agency Protect Blue, along with the Wavemaker Collective. If you're looking to get through a great life challenge, Lindsay shares a strategy to commit to doing one thing you love to find your way through. You know, we also talk about how to find ways to live in closer attention to nature's cycles. We learn about her favorite place to have a conversation with the entire universe. Hey, universe, it's me. How her company, Protect Blue, uses nature as a co-facilitator. It's like wide open space, which enables you to think much bigger and dream much bigger dreams. And for those of us who took a winding road to get to where we are or where we hope to be, We look at how our unique stories, our unique challenges, even perceived weaknesses, may actually be the best thing we've got. This conversation was a real pleasure. Let's learn from Lindsay how to get closer to our own ocean state of mind. Let's drop in. All right, so we have Lindsay Hawkin on the line, calling in from the island of Jersey in the UK. Hey. Lindsay. Let's just start. Perhaps you can just tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, maybe where you're living. You're in a unique setup right now, and we'll take it from there. Yeah, so I live on a little island called Jersey, which is in between England and France. Um, It's pretty small, nine miles by five. And on that little island, I live in a tiny house in in a big field overlooking the ocean. So, yeah, pretty blessed with that setup. And I'm like on the coast, on the west coast of the island, which is where the surf is. So, yeah, wake up and see the waves, which is, um, yeah, pretty awesome. And in terms of what I do, when people ask me that question, I normally say that my work sits at the intersection of sustainability and creativity um, with a definite, definite like ocean focus. So um, you could call me a brand strategist. You could call me like an environmental educator a whole bunch of other things but yeah that's generally where my work sits and I'm the co-founder of an agency called Protect Blue and again super niche very very ocean focused creative agency and we do a whole bunch of stuff so we do like client facing work where we work with brands or non-profits or startups who are in the impact space I guess that's you know impact or purpose-driven space but then we also have a bunch of pretty amazing projects that we work on internally so We've just built uh, an environmental education curriculum. We're building um, an incubator for ocean advocates. We run events. 
so yeah, a whole bunch of stuff. But there's a, there's definitely a common theme that runs through it all, a common ocean theme. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot with your life. I mean, you've you've settled into a place where you can see the ocean. Your work seems to all revolve around the ocean. I wonder what is it about the ocean? What drew you to the ocean? What's it about the sea for Lindsay? Hmm. So I was really lucky when I was, I mean, listen, when you live on an island and you grow up on an island, I think you're always going to have a connection to the ocean. But when I was four, my parents bought a house, like where they still live now and, and where where my tiny house is kind of out the back of. So they bought this house um, on the top of this hill overlooking the ocean. And it's really funny because when they tell me about that time, you know, now it's it's like a part of the island where people are like, oh, I'd love to live on the West Coast overlooking the beach. But when they bought it, like they said, all their friends thought they were totally nuts because it was kind of just in the middle of nowhere. And yeah, it was just this this rundown place. And and so I, you know, I grew up with the beach as my backyard. And I, I, I remember so often, and I had a conversation with a friend about this recently, that these days you'd probably get really told off for doing this as a parent. But my mom used to like drop me at the beach on her way to work. <laughs> And then pick me up when she finished. And now I'm like, oh, yeah, maybe you couldn't do that anymore. But it was amazing. And I so I spent like just ridiculous amounts of time in the water and just hanging out. And I, you know, I went to my mom used to she's just amazing. She when I was a kid, she used to take me to the beach on my way to school, like pretty much every day. And she tells me these stories of how she would drive down. And my sister, I have an older sister, so she was with us. But they would stay in the car. I don't even know what that was about. And and I would like get out the car and run down and just have my moment with the sea and then and then get back in the car and be like, cool, I'm ready to go to, to school now. And that happened like, yeah, all the way, almost all the way through school until I went to like secondary school and was catching the bus and all that kind of stuff. But just amazing looking back now, remembering that. And um, yeah, so there was just that link always. And then I think when I was about, it's pretty late, like probably like 14 15 just started surfing and would walk to the beach from home and and yeah it, it was funny like I think it was kind of a pivotal time in my life because I think you could probably track my grades at school and then when I started <laughs> surfing <laughs> suddenly I was like kind of a geek at school until then and then it all somewhat I mean listen you could say it fell apart fell together however you look at it but um suddenly I wasn't really interested in school anymore that's for sure <laughs> <laughs> I'd say it fell together yeah I think so I mean now with hindsight I'm like oh that was good but I think at the time probably my parents definitely my teachers were like what just happened to her but yeah it's funny <laughs> that's that's incredible that's incredible to be able to start each day yeah. like that yeah and to it's have a good. and to have a a mother perhaps that recognized like Lindsay may need to go run wild out on the beach for a little bit each morning. <laughs> yeah, it's so, it's so nuts. Like I, I definitely didn't appreciate it at the time. And now I look back and I'm like, wow, so lucky, you know. So you've got, for guests that I interview, it, you have a very rich blog that just is, there's so many amazing nuggets. One of the ones you wrote about, you said, you were talking about turning something you really want to do into a specific tangible challenge. Mm. 
And you almost said to your readership, you know, I dare you, right? Go find something to do. Yeah. And you wrote you wrote about something you did years ago where you committed to 100 days. Yeah. And I wonder if you might rewind the tape and take us back to what you committed to, why, what did you uncover yeah. through that journey of doing the same thing in and out for months on end? Yeah. Um, okay. So it's so it's so strange because when I think back, I'm like, I can't, I don't think I could even tell you how long ago that was. It was probably eight years ago, maybe yeah, about eight. So at the time I was living in Australia, I thought that I had hit rock bottom. <laughs> so previous to that period of time, I was based in between here in Jersey and in the southwest of France, and I was running music festivals. And I was running them with my then husband. Um, and we had just had to make a pretty horrific decision to cancel uh, a show in France. And I'm going to wrap this into like the, the shortest version of this story. But <laughs> basically, that decision was like a domino effect uh, on the entire business. So we had a very successful festival here in Jersey. But the decision to cancel the French one had this knock-on effect and, and meant that we lost everything. So basically, we were back in Australia. Um, we lost all of our money, a lot of other people's money. Um, we were really, like, really struggling and also, like, lost the career and the business that we had built. And so at that time, like I said, I thought I was at rock bottom. It was a pretty brutal period of time, um, and it was a very public failure. So it didn't just impact me, like it impacted my family. And uh, yeah, it was it was just really, really rough. Anyway, so we'd gone back to Oz just to try and, I don't know, just get everything back together and just start again, like kind of a blank slate. And in that period of time, uh, like my marriage was starting to fall apart. I think I was in denial for a really long time. And so by the time we got back to Oz, yeah, things were pretty rough. And so as that started to fall apart, the, my then husband went away on a surf trip to Indonesia, and uh, and I remember thinking like this could this could fix everything. Do you know what I mean? Because I because I knew the power of of surfing, right? And knew like what that could do for someone when they're in a really shitty place. So, but actually, what it did was um, he came back and literally announced from one day to the next that he was done, and uh, and so this suddenly this rock bottom that I thought I was looked like Disneyland because actually I was about to go to another rock bottom. Mm -hmm. And um, he left like within a week, he'd, he'd moved out. And, um, and then the, I think the day after he moved out, I, something in me was just like, I mean, literally everything I knew to be real, everything that I, that I uh, thought was my solid ground was gone. And I was like, I just need something, <laughs> like I need something that reminds me of who I am. And I've like, I've totally lost, um, I don't know, like I'd lost myself by that point, like my, who I, you know, my identity in terms of like my work and who I thought I was and who I was showing up in the world was just gone. And so I don't even really remember where the idea came from, but I was like, I just need to go surf. Like I just need to get in the water and so somehow I came up with this idea of like what if I just went surfing for a hundred days in a row and I think part of my part of my like theory of change around that was like nothing bad can come from this like 
like nothing bad can come. Like I will only be a better human being if I've spent that much time in the water. And even if it doesn't make me feel better or fix anything, whatever, give me any clarity, then I just, yeah, it, it will have been a good experience. And so the very next day I started this challenge and I had a GoPro. So I fixed the GoPro onto the front of my longboard and started this challenge. And it's so funny when I think back to it now, because there were days where that that was literally all I managed to do, right? Mm. Like I that was that was it. Like and it, but it it gave me a reason to like get out of bed and leave the house and, um, you know, and and where I was living was I was living right on the beach, but actually there was a point break about like a like five minute drive from my place, and I surfed there most days, and it just was the most unbelievable experience. Like I. I'm so grateful now to have filmed it because it's like going back in time when I watch those those videos because I I know exactly where I was. Do you know what I mean emotionally in, mm-hmm. in a lot of them? And but the, the filming them and I put them on Facebook at the time. Filming them um gave me this level of accountability that I don't know if I hadn't done that whether I would have pulled it off because I needed uh, I needed a reason to do it every day and very few people who were watching those films actually knew why I was doing it. So it's kind of hilarious because I was getting these messages from people. Oh my God, you're living such a dream life. I wish my life was like <laughs> yours. <laughs> and right. I remember just being like, wow, <laughs> you do not know what's happening in my world right now. And, you know, this wasn't a, this wasn't a channel to like talk to people about this shit that was going on in my life. Cause I, I wasn't even processing it myself at that point, but it was just this like, just a commitment to showing up and um and it's really weird when I look back and watch those films now it's like I can see the change you know like I can see myself healing in that process and you know it was it was just the beginning of a very long healing process but it definitely was was a catalyst to reminding myself who I am and and what's important you know yeah and I wonder if you could say more about you know what did the ocean remind you of Well, that's a good question. (laughs) I mean, I guess sometimes we, regardless of your relationship with the ocean, right? Like you, it's just part of who you are. And for me, it had been part of who I am for, for like, for, it seemed like forever, but life had, I don't know, it had kind of gotten in the way and work had gotten in the way and I, I had, it had gone down on my priority list so there was that aspect in it already to just be like oh god yeah this is a really important part of my life that I've somehow pushed to one side you know in in that period of time when I was doing that 100 days of surfing I probably didn't really have trust in anything else (laughs) you know but I knew that this one thing this one connection this one relationship with the sea was something that would always be there and could always be depended on um and I think right now in the middle of this crazy COVID space, that's one thing you can rely on is nature, right? Like it's the one thing you could trust more than anything else that, you know, the sun will come up and the sun will go down and the tides will happen and there will be days with swell and there'll be days with no swell. And so there's something really grounding. And, and I guess in that grounding, it's really healing to be reminded of the importance of that relationship and to kind of fall in sync back in sync with that relationship I think I you know during that period of time 
So here's a random like side fact about Jersey <laughs> is that Jersey has the the third largest tidal range in the world. So it really pays to know what the tide's doing because <laughs> our tides go up to 11 meters, right? Mm. Which is insane. And so for years when I was, so way back when I used to run a surf school here. And so I, I have always been like super, I don't know what the right word is, like super connected and just super informed with where the tide is at any point in the day and, you know, what the conditions are like, what the weather's going to be like. And I think in, during that period of time of, of running festivals and, and, and just working so hard, I had lost, like to me that's almost my litmus test. Like do I know what the tide's doing? Because if I know what the tide's doing, then I'm in sync. Like something's good. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And if I don't know what the tide's doing, and there are times in my life where I'm like, I haven't known what the tide has been doing for weeks. <laughs> and that's a really good signal. It's a red flag for me, you know? Um, and I'm sure other people have different, yeah, different litmus tests, but, but, but it's that connection and that synchronicity with nature that for me is really grounding and, and above anything else, it's the thing that, that gives you that, I don't know, sense of security or sense of certainty that can withstand any storm, you know? That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, the story of your mom dropping you off at the beach is just so interesting in, in mm. a variety of ways. Right. Do, do you feel like that consistent time by the sea imprinted itself on you in any way? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it, I guess it did. I think um, I think also there's something quite intentional about it. Like I'm I'm very intentional about it now. I think as a kid, it, yeah, for sure, it just imprinted itself. Um, but I think you can choose to have that right like you can you can decide that that's something you want to make a priority and I think as you get older and like I don't know life shit gets in the way you you have to choose because uh it's not quite as simple like when you're a kid and your mom drops you off at the beach every morning like you're pretty good <laughs> you know um but yeah there's there's decisions and I and I think for me part of that healing process was recognizing that I had whether it was subconsciously or whatever I had stopped making that decision to be connected you know so that 100 days enabled me to to be intentional about that decision again does the does the trust in nature I mean it's such an amazing statement right if I if I if I know what the tide is doing I'm good <laughs> I have this sort of deep yeah. trust in this thing that it's gonna keep happening no matter what else is happening does it feel like a, a is it a faith you know, people say, oh, I trust in God. Mm. Is this sort of a, a right. piece of your own spirituality or can you say more about yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, I I guess it is. It's really funny because I, I grew up in a household that is like pretty much as unreligious as you could possibly get. Like my parents didn't get married in a church. My sister and I didn't get christened. Like we're just not religious in any shape or form. My My dad is like classic science-based approach you know um and so I really shunned all levels of anything beyond just science I, for, for a really long time and I think it wasn't until life fell apart that I was like holy shit there has to be some bigger meaning to all of this and so I think there's always been a very strong connection to nature but I think probably in the last I don't know like five years that's probably gone to a deeper level um, and 
yeah, it's it's really interesting. And I think we label things so much and I'm really scared of being labeled or being put in a box. So um, I don't, I, it's almost like I don't want to use the word spirituality, but like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, there's something about a relationship to nature to me that is humbling and reminds me how small I am and how insignificant. And I mean that in like the very best way <laughs> and reminding me that I, um, I think one of the biggest lessons in the last few years has been around surrender and equanimity and just learning to, yeah, like learning to sit stuff out and, and, and having some faith or some trust or whatever you want to call it, that things will unfold the way they're supposed to unfold and things will fall into place the way they're supposed to fall into place. And surely, I guess the question I, I like ask myself when those words come out of my mouth is like, well, if you believe that, then, then you must believe there's something bigger at play. Right. Because otherwise that, you know, if I said that to my dad, my dad would be like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, so yeah, I guess, I guess I, I definitely have a, uh, a connection, a relationship with something bigger than myself. And, and it's really funny. I have this one spot. So I'll have to send you a photo of this. So in someone's Bay, which is the, the main surfing beach on the Island, there's this huge tower that during our massive tides, you can walk out to. But it's also just an amazing paddle, um, and it's from this, I think, the 16th century. It's incredible, and and there's a spot right behind the tower that I quite often paddle to. And it's funny; it's like when you when you get, to, it's like I could mark it out its exact coordinates on a map. But like when you get to that spot, the island almost disappears out of view a little bit, you know. And um, mm. and I I go there quite a lot. Like I'll just paddle out, like normally super early in the morning. And uh, that's the place. So now I'm going to sound like properly woo-woo, but like that's the place where I go and have conversations, like out loud conversations with the universe. Um, mm. So yeah, <laughs> when I'm like, I'm not spiritual at all. And then I'm like, well, maybe a little bit. <laughs> um, but yeah, and the, the sea is that place for me. I mean, I guess nature at large, but I've been really lucky that my whole life, uh, like I've never lived, I've never lived away from the sea. So I've never had to find an alternative version of that, you know? Yeah. What, um, what does the universe say? What do you talk, what do you talk <laughs> I mean, to the universe about? <laughs> it depends on the day. Like, um, it's really funny. Like literally, like if someone paddled behind me or like you, you, like there are days where you would hear the words, Hey universe, it's me. Like, it's ridiculous. Uh, I don't know. It, it's just, it's like an opportunity to, to like yeah I, I think it I think it's just it it puts me in my place I and I mean that in a really good way you know of uh of having a a sense of um connectedness and um yeah I mean sometimes sometimes it answers <laughs> and sometimes it doesn't I don't know but it but it's like it creates the it's almost like a dialogue right and I, I've had this conversation with with lots of friends before and especially actually at, like wave maker type folk um, of this very, uh, very personal relationship with the sea. And, and I think if you've, if you've gone through some stuff in life where the sea has been your therapist or your church or your whatever, then that relationship becomes really like a lot more intense and you become fairly protective over it, you know? That's so interesting. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's switch gears for a minute, Lindsay. And um, I want to ask about your um, agency. So you have a, you have a creative agency. It's called Protect Blue. And can you say a little bit about what you do and how do you, and maybe how do we as humans protect blue? How Mm -hmm. how do we protect, how do we best protect our oceans? Hmm. Um, So yeah, so the, the very like short version of this kind of origin story is that I started Protect Blue, I actually can't even remember when I started, 2017? maybe. Yeah, 2017. Um, And it was to start with, it was just an event uh, for ocean advocates. And um, it was a way of bringing people together to, yeah, protect blue, (laughs) to talk about the ocean and the threats that that we're facing. And um, the biggest thing was that the event was all outside and all experiential. So we had incredible people come and deliver presentations whilst we were like hiking up a hill or paddling in the ocean, that kind of stuff. And what came from that was this incredible community of people who are hugely passionate, like very diverse group of people, um, but people all around the world who are doing incredible work to uh, protect the ocean. And then, um, yeah, in the last kind of two years, it's now evolved um, into a creative agency. So um, Luke, my business partner, who you met in um, in New York, so his side of things is is like storytelling, uh, so photography and videography, and, and my side is probably more the strategy side. And so we bring those two things together. And I think what's quite interesting about that is it's quite rare to have them together, you know, so um, normally you'd go to an agency just to, to get storytelling or you'd go to a consultant to do the strategy bit. So we kind of bring both those things together with a lens of, I mean, almost purely ocean. Like when I look at all the work that we're doing, yeah, we rarely do stuff that isn't blue. And some of those projects are internal. So they're our own things that we're building. So we've been working on an environmental education curriculum that's, that's founded in design thinking. So we've been working on that for almost two years. Um, so that's our own kind of product or service. And same, we're, we're building out this incubator for ocean ag- advocates. Um, but then we also just do more like, I guess, typical agency work where we, we get hired to go um, and do storytelling or do strategy or a combination of both for NGOs or, or nonprofits and sometimes startups or purpose-driven companies. And so I think so much of our process is, yeah, I mean... <laughs> The, the starting block of all of this is always just getting more people outside. Like I know it sounds really simplistic, but to me it's like that's, yeah, that's what you need to build is that connection with with nature and connection with ocean because without that you're going to really struggle to do anything to protect it. And we've actually been having some super interesting conversations just recently around the language that we use in protecting the ocean. And um, I was really lucky uh, right before lockdown, actually, we were in Indonesia and I was doing some training at Green School in Bali, uh, environmental education training, which was just phenomenal. Uh, I don't know if you know much about Green School. It's like the dream, the dream spot. It's absolutely gorgeous. I'm aware of it. Yeah. Yeah. So um, uh, as is now I'm learning, as is the way at Green School, just magic sometimes happens. And and halfway through our week-long program, um, Desi, the, the the woman who was running our program, was like, "Oh, just so you guys know, Alexandra Christo is here. Her kids are at school here at the moment for a few months, so she's going to run a workshop for you guys." And it was hilarious because, like, there wasn't really anyone else in my group who was really ocean, so they were like, "Huh, cool." And I was, I was just like, "What? <laughs> what? <laughs> what, right. what?" 
And um, my it's it's funny because the other day I was stressing out because I thought I'd lost my notes because I took so many notes in this workshop. But thankfully, I found them. But her biggest uh, piece of advice, which I loved and and I think need to be reminded of often, is yeah how we how we position this work and how we talk about protecting our ocean and how we um yeah how how we communicate that because her way of looking at it is that we need to be um visioning and co-creating and co-dreaming a brighter future and talking about what that future will look like and not painting this picture which we've all heard a thousand times of like oh by by this date there's going to be more plastic in the ocean than fish you know and I think we've always had an optimistic viewpoint predominantly because we're coming in from an educational point especially because ambassadors for the planet is a primary school focused curriculum so you've got to be optimistic right like you don't want to like you know throw kids into this doom and gloom picture but but I think what's really important now is going well in everything that we do whether we are focusing on kids stuff or actually whether we're engaging adults let's see if we can lean into that kind of radical hope and optimism and use that as a driving force as opposed to oh my god we're all doomed you know the oceans are are falling apart and yeah and I think it's fascinating because actually once you switch onto that you start to notice how awful some of the language is around this you know whether it's using yeah whether it's using the word crisis whether it's um you know, I know Charles Eisenstein talks a huge amount about this in regards to, um, you know, we're, we talk often about the fight against climate change and, and we use all of this kind of military language. And I think we also very, very easily fall into this space of creating uh, really big walls between like us, the good guys and those people, the bad guys. And that's just not going to help. I mean, I get it. <laughs> there are days where I'm like, yeah, those people are the bad guys, but I don't know that that's going to help in in actually restoring and regenerating ocean. Like we need to get to a place where we can, um, you know, there's something in um, climate, a new story, right? I think it's like the first couple of chapters, but I remember underlining it and be like, oh, that's so important, where Eisenstein says, um, to often ask yourself when looking at someone else or another point of view is like, what is it like to be you? And it's such a, like, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's like empathy 101, right? But actually it's really useful when you're looking at this space of ocean conservation of, of like, okay, well, if I was the guy that was about to pull down this mangrove forest, like, what is it like to be you? Like, why are you making those decisions and how might we um, help you make better decisions that, that can be mutually beneficial you know it doesn't have to be this case of we win and you lose like so yeah I think that's that seems to be like top of mind for me at the moment yeah that's that's brilliant it is it was interesting to hear you say like at the core so much of the work is about getting people outside Mm. and like how are you gonna protect something if if you don't know it and fall in love with it yeah and um what are what are some ways clients you work with? Like, what are some innovative uh, ways that people you work with, organizations are are getting folks outside that are inspiring that human nature connection? I mean, I think interestingly, quite often we can end up being the catalyst for that, which is amazing and like such a privilege. I think so. That's awesome. We the branding process that we 
we use brand strategy. So I've been running that for a, a, like a long time. And up until about two years ago, I was doing it all on Skype, right? So every session, it was like six sessions normally over six weeks. And, um, and I'd give clients, you know, we'd spend an hour or, or an hour or two each time each week and then give them work to do. And I just got to this point where I was like, this, there's some dissonance between this process with, that I know is highly creative and, and, and thought provoking. Like I trained as a coach. So a lot of that skill of questioning comes from, from training as a coach. Right. But, but I was like, there's a dissonance between that and sitting in front of a computer screen. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. And it also, then there's another level of dissonance of like, this isn't even who I am. <laughs> like, I don't want to sit in front of a computer screen. So why am I making my clients do it? So, <laughs> um, so I started experimenting with what if I took that entire process outside? And so now super stoked that process is always experiential. Um, it's kind of hilarious because I'm like, we've done like the ones we've done in the last year you know a lot of it is like hiking so we did one in Zurich and we're um, working with an amazing company um, using blockchain as a force for good and so we're like hiking around the lake in Zurich and I'm I'm sure there's like a more efficient way of doing this but like I'm literally hiking whilst scribbling notes frantically (laughs) and every now and then we get to stop and I get to write shit down but and then I get back to my hotel at night and I'm like what (laughs) what what did I mean here but um but that has been pretty transformational I think for for us as an agency but also for our clients because they're like oh my god like we some of the stuff that came up for us whilst we were yeah, like I mean, like sometimes we're literally like sitting on a beach or sitting in a field in the mountains or whatever, and just talking shit out. And it's it's their team, it's their core team, but they've never done that before, and they've never taken things out of a boardroom or a meeting room. And so for them to to almost step into our world, and we're like, yeah, this is how we think best. <laughs> you should come try it. It's pretty fun. Um, and so what it ends up building is a really beautiful space. Uh, for us all to explore stuff together and and now the the kind of added bonus is that we shoot that process as well so they end up with really beautiful content um, that is so connected to who they are as a brand because now we only really work with purpose-driven brands so it's kind of wherever we choose to go on that micro adventure whether it's you know hiking in a mountain or or kind of through the forest or on a beach, it's there's a connection to their brand because we've gone to them, right? So we're not randomly taking them out of their environment. We're just going deeper into their natural environment. Um, yeah. 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 So you've, you, I mean, you've basically made the decision to have nature be a co-facilitator. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it, and it's interesting, like, how does nature help facilitate these either branding or strategy sessions? And if you were to describe nature as a co-facilitator, what are their strengths? Oh my God, I love What, what are that. her strengths? Can we steal that line for our website? <laughs> um, nature is our co-facilitator. Um, okay, so, I mean, I, I, I guess initially it's like wide open space, which, which enables you to think beyond your normal constraints and think much bigger and, and dream much bigger dreams. And then, then there's also that sense of playfulness that comes from being in nature, right? Where you are innately playful when you are walking through a forest or, you know, you're walking along a beach with no shoes on. It's like you just fit, you feel differently. And I think that level of playfulness is so often lost, especially in like corporate world. People are like, what? 
play? <laughs> what is that? That's what kids do, you know? So, um, yeah, there's something in that. And then, and then also like that mindfulness piece, that presence piece, like you can't, it's, it's very difficult to create that in a, in an indoor corporate type of environment. Um, and there's two things to that. One is just the value of being present and, and mindful because that allows you to think um, and go to places in your head where you wouldn't normally go. And then also just from a really practical sense of like just being a lot less distracted. And if the only thing that distracts you is like a bird that lands on your path or then, then that's amazing. <laughs> you know, that's like yeah. an intervention of like the very best kind, but like, yeah, I think that, um, yeah, in that way, nature kind of, um, it, it holds us in this space that is really, um, it's the perfect, it's like the, yeah, it's like the perfect conditions for, for, for deep, meaningful conversations. And, and like, I think, I guess maybe that's partly why our approach is so different is that for me, brand strategy isn't like, Oh, we're going to come up with a tagline. And so it's not that at all. It's like, I want to understand like what's at the core of your being and why you actually give a shit and what the impact that you want to have on the world is and what that means to you. And so I can't have those conversations with you over a screen. Like I want to have those conversations with you face to face. I'm going to ask you really hard questions. And I think also one of the things that is almost a a, a parallel theme with nature being a co-facilitator and us being co-facilitators is trusting the process. So that's something that I think I talk about a fair amount with clients is that, you know, we have this, this kind of six phase process to do brand strategy and um, like, don't worry, like we got you, we're going to walk you through it. You don't need to, you don't really need to know where you're going. You don't really need to worry that we've hit certain milestones. If we need to spend longer in one place than another, we will Um, like, we're just going to hold the space. And that's why even this whole me taking the notes is like, I want you as a client to be completely free to just think like, I don't want you to have to, I don't want you to have to take notes. I don't want you to remember anything. I don't want you to be like, Oh, it's 2 PM. We should be on this section by now. Like, no, it's good. You know, we'll, we'll walk and we'll, and we'll sit and we'll talk as long as we need to. And, and I know that, and it's different for every single client. So some clients, there are certain sections that we, get into and spend a lot of time. And then others were like, Oh, you guys have got this. We don't need to talk too much about this, but there, you know, then there'll be another part that we need to uh, dive deeper on, but that trusting the process, which is, you know, that's like the ultimate lesson that we learn from nature um, is, is really useful in this for us, because I think that, that those are the kind of clients I get most excited about working with is the ones who are like, okay, okay, we'll go on an adventure with you and we will, we will trust you enough to hand over control somewhat um and just come on this journey and and uh and see where it takes us you know yeah it's just amazing i love it and i i know listeners will be interested to learn more so we can have some links on our um on our site to protect.blue and and your work uh it's just amazing let me let me pick up on a couple of themes you shared that are are a nice connection to uh, the place you and I met, Lindsay, which is the Wavemaker Collective. And folks will have heard from Eski, who's one of the co-founders in our last episode, along with you and Carolina. And I I remember in one of your blogs, you wrote about, you know, loving to build community that creates the space for wild ideas. Hmm. Yeah. 
And so we met at just an absolute amazing retreat, the Wavemaker Collective, which you guys have been hosting in Portugal the last couple of years. And maybe just talk a little bit about what the Wavemaker Collective is, mm. how it's grown and, and what surprises you the most. Yeah, so Wavemaker Collective, um, its very first iteration was actually in Bali in 2015, and I was part of it, but not—I wasn't part of the like the main team. Um, there were, I think, about seven incredible water women who were part of that. Iski um, was kind of leading the pack, I guess. There, and and she had invited me. Uh, so then it, it wasn't Wavemakers; it was called Surf Social Good. Um, and she invited me to teach a, uh, a branding workshop. So it was kind of branding for nonprofits. And so I went and, and taught that. And it was a, it was very different to what Wavemakers looks like today. I think there were like 70 people. Um, it was probably a lighter touch, if that makes sense, you know, um, more like an event than a, than a retreat. And then after that, we, you know, over probably the course of a year, year and a half, we just started exploring how we might build something more from that. And we actually spent some time in the Southwest of France together, just mapping it out and be like, what could this look like? And how could we, yeah, how could we develop it and bring each of our different skill sets into play? And I think that's the thing that I probably appreciate most about Wavemakers and, or at least the development of it is that Iski, Carolina and I have very, very different skill sets and very different ways of looking at the world, but very complementary. And um, it's funny, yesterday I was listening to your episode, Diski, and reflecting on how, yeah, how, how different we are, but how amazing that is. And 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 I, as I was listening to it, I was like, oh, I need a bit more of Iski in my life <laughs> because everything she was saying, I was like, oh, shit, yeah. So it's like almost like when I'm out of balance, I'm like, I need more Iski. But um, yeah, so the three of us came together um, we run Wavemakers in this unbelievable spot in Erasira, right on top of the hill, overlooking Ribera Dillish, which is this ridiculous right-hander, um, which is actually now a surfing world surfing reserve. It's, yeah, a beautiful spot. And really it's a coming together of, I mean, yeah, Wavemakers, Changemakers, uh, people who are using, and not necessarily surfing, but definitely using surfing, nature, uh, nature connection for social or environmental impact. Yeah, we, we want to make a dent in something. We want to have an impact. And so we're excited about being surrounded by people who are in that space. And so the thing that I'm probably most proud about Wavemakers is just the unbelievable human beings who show up. Like it it blows my mind. I, I get imposter syndrome literally every year that we run it. Uh, you know, we do this, we do this story of us um, process normally on the first two nights and you get to hear everyone's stories. And, and I sit there and I'm like, what the, like, how, where did these people come from? They're incredible. And, and I think there's so much to say that now that, you know, I think, you know, that you're doing a good job at, at designing an experience and building a community based on what that community looks like post event. You know, I've been to, I've been to like tons of uh, events or retreats and stuff where you've had an amazing time together and it was, you know, it was life-changing or transformational, but then you leave and then that's kind of it. And I think the thing with Wavemakers that blows me away is that those connections still stay and, um, and they deepen actually over time rather than, than dissipate, which is, yeah, which I think says a lot to the quality of the people who come. Um, and there's just so much, um, co-creation and inspiration that comes from the group. I think that's one thing that we've been really 
mindful to do is build something where like we'll build the scaffolding or the framework around this process, but we'll also create some space where we're like, oh, okay, cool. Johnny wants to run a breathwork thing. Let's do that. You know, and then the next one it's like, oh, Hanley wants to run a breath. Let's do that. You know, and, and it's amazing because we end up with these, these, these phenomenal people who have so much to bring. Um, so we all get to learn from each other, which is really special. Yeah. 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 Really one of the most amazing experiences for me as a participant, mm. one of the, at, you know, and one of the highlights for me, and it was interesting because I, you know, I absolutely love surfing and I was so excited to surf in Portugal and there Sarah, which I had never been to. And, um, one of the highlights was not surfing, but it was the activity of wave play. Yes. Yeah. You do, you know, each year and, you know, just in our conversation right now, you've been talking about surrender and empathy mm-hmm. and gratitude and playfulness and maybe describe a little bit about what the wave play uh, activity is all about mm-hmm. and what you've, you've seen people take away from it. Yeah, I feel like it gets stronger every year. Like it, it becomes more cemented in our process. We're like, we could never not do this now. Um, so, you know, I'd love to say that that it was all very, very well thought out and intentional. It was somewhat, but I just think it has been reaffirmed that it was the right decision year on year. But basically, we we decided that the first water session wouldn't be a surf, and I think part of that reason is because surfing, albeit the most incredible sport, it can be quite a divider of a group of people because, especially actually, like Erasira. It's, it's not like the most beginner friendly wave, you know, like the, like it's some pretty serious slabs and reefs and stuff around there. So what tends to happen is when you take a group surfing, it almost immediately splits a group. And so, and, and I think wave makers historically has always had that split. There's always been people in there who, who surf a lot and, you know, some people are like professional surfers and then people who are just learning. And so if your first experience of ocean together as a group is one where you immediately split into two or three groups because these guys are paddling out the back and these guys are staying in the whitewash even the even like the choice of boards like I think back to you know running a surf school and especially um with women like teaching women to surf like the moment you your equipment looks very different from someone else's you can you can get into a different mindset. Like I always think that like I'm a really, I really suck at snowboarding, but I love it. But um, there's a sense that, you know, when you go up the mountain with your like rental gear and stuff, you're like, everyone knows I'm a kook. <laughs> you know? So so it's a similar thing with the surfing is that you, um, you know, if you go surfing on your first session, immediately your group is split. And so those bonds are formed slightly differently. And so uh, we work with these incredible guys, uh, local guys from Arasira who have a body surfing school, which in itself is really rare. Like there aren't very many body surfing schools in the world, but body surfing is huge in Portugal. Um, and, uh, and they run this workshop for us and it's just, it's mind blowing the impact of it because we're all in it together. It doesn't matter I mean, think about it. Like we've had such, you know, we've had very accomplished surfers. We've had like Olympic swimmers. We've had world record, like free divers, but we are all on the same level when we go and jump in um, together. And I think it is such an incredible bonding experience. Um, It teaches us all so much about play and joy and just what happens when you, you know, I think surfing, sometimes you can be in your own head a bit and you can become competitive 
Whereas when you're body surfing, like it's actually more fun if there's a whole bunch of you like either riding a wave together or getting smashed by the same set or whatever that is. And, you know, obviously there's huge lessons in surrender and flow that come from, from your interaction with the sea. But, but I think for me, like, you know, having done that for a few years now and, and now recognizing the value of that as a, as a process for a group of people is, is being able to almost step back a tiny bit. And I don't really want to, cause I just want to be in it. But last year, definitely like step back a little bit and just watched it happen and watch this group of people, uh, just immediately come together and experience something that for most people is pretty new and pretty different. And I like, it's changed, you know, it's definitely changed my relationship with, with ocean. Um, because I, yeah, it's something that I probably didn't ever think of doing much before. And now it's, it's a, just a, it's a different way to play in the ocean that, that feels, uh, yeah, it feels like it gives me a different type of energy from surfing. And so to be able to do that with other people is just, just amazing. Yeah, it's incredible. Well, the whole, the whole experience, Lindsay, um, there's been so many nuggets in here from sort of trust in nature, right. And the sun always rises and (laughs) noticing, noticing that if you're not paying attention to the tides coming up and down, living on the (laughs) island that you live on, like something may be off. Yeah. Right. And and finding your equivalent of that is. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, you know, finding, finding something you can trust in that, you know, is going to bring stability Mm. um, into your life just seems like a really uh, wonderful piece. Um, Before we wrap, uh, I guess one question just is like, what else is on your mind or or that you'd like to share? And and that's like one, one last question. Mm. Um, What else is on my mind? Um, A lot. (laughs) I think, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting at the moment. I'm I'm working on a bunch of different projects and doing some consultancy, um, but there's just common threads running through through everything. I think one of the things that I uh, it's becoming more obvious to me. I still, uh, ironically, when when I tell you about it, you'll be like, "That's ironic that you can't articulate it," but I'm struggling to articulate it. Is um, a skill set of mine that I have always played down and almost been almost been embarrassed about, um, which is being able to translate fairly complex things into really simple language and quite playful language. Um, and you know, a lot of that has come from whether it was when I was writing sub kids or now writing curriculum for ambassadors for the planet is like, yeah, I'm, I'm writing for like a seven-year-old. So I'm going to need to take climate change and, and, you know, and I so often use the words dumb it down. And now I'm like, Oh, I don't think it is dumbing it down actually. Um, and I think what I'm starting to recognize, like, I mean, literally in the last few weeks is that like, I think this is actually a, a pretty useful skill and something that's fairly needed in the world because we are, um, we are entering into this very critical space where we need to make some pretty massive changes in terms of our relationship with the environment and the ocean. And, um, in order to, in order for people to feel empowered to do something and to engage in it, they need to understand. And I think that adults, um, we really suck at saying, I don't really understand that. <laughs> you know. And I think that I, for whatever reason, I think I've always been somewhat of an outlier. I don't have any shame in being like, I don't understand what you're saying. <laughs> 
I don't get that, you know? And so, um, and I think part of that is the fact that I, you know, I, I'm writing curriculum, but I didn't go to university. I, you know, I didn't study beyond school. I, I just didn't choose a normal path. And so I've, I've definitely felt like, oh, who am I to be doing this? How am I qualified? And now I'm starting to understand like, oh, I think because I didn't do those things, that's what makes my perspective into this slightly different. And actually that might be a good thing. So, I mean, it was hilarious. Last week I was on this, I was invited to do this talk uh, of this kind of webinar thing with the UN Tech Innovation Lab. And immediately I was like, oh my God. (laughs) I got the list of who else was going to be on it. And I was like, why have they invited me to be on it? This is horrendous. Like I'm going to just sound like a total kook. But what I realized when I came off that call was I was like, oh, I can bring something fresh into this conversation and I can throw a level of optimism and, yeah, this kind of whole space for wild ideas and, and bring in some enthusiasm and some curiosity into this conversation that I think is so often missing. And I think we, you know, adults often use complex language um, to boost their own self like I don't know whether yeah I don't know I don't know but I but I have a sense that quite often we 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 use it as a almost like as a form of defense but but it's like if you yeah if you can find a way to explain something in a really really simple way that actually hits home with people and and what I've noticed in the last year actually working with Luke a lot has been really good of writing scripts right so he's making films and I'm writing scripts so like how can I write a script for a nonprofit or, uh, you know, an ocean conservation organization that will be, that will, that will engage people, that will be emotive, that will make them feel something, but also will make them understand. Um, yeah. So it's been, I listen, I don't know. I don't even know if you asked me to put that on my CV, not that I have a CV, but if you are, I wouldn't know how to describe it. I'm like, I don't know. I think I can dumb things down quite well, <laughs> but it's, um, yeah, that's something I've been playing with, I think. Yeah, and well, and it's it, it it's a whole nother episode in many ways. What you just touched on, right? It's we have this notion of who's smart and who's not, mm-hmm. and the folks that you know have the privilege to go to college are are smart, and the lawyers are smart, and the car mechanics. It's a different yeah thing suddenly, and a plumber. But actually, like the the, the depth of intelligence that folks bring to the table, and and from very non traditional routes. Mm. Um, that actually allow these gifts, yeah. like you've, you know, like, like you've said, um, it's amazing mm. in that way. Well, Lindsay, I am, um, I am so, uh, so happy we've been able to talk. Feels like a terrific privilege for me, and I know for folks that will be listening to this. And, me too. Um, I mean, it's just so. I, I, this is the joy of WaveMakers, right? Is that we get to carry on these kind of conversations. I, that's the only sad thing about it is when we say goodbye to everyone. I'm like, I really hope I can carry on that conversation I started with you at lunch. <laughs> you know, in the yeah. next few years. So, yeah, it's been it's been so good to to like actually just dive deep on conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Same. Uh, well, before we go, uh, any good books on the ocean that you've been? reading lately oh um oh any good books on the ocean let me see I I I'm one of those people who has like 10 books like open at any one time which is it's a dreadful habit I don't recommend it to anyone I'm, I'm guilty oh god it's dreadful um 
I'm actually, do you know what's really funny? I was thinking about this the other night and this is the whole, like how you, how you talk about things, how you articulate things. I'm actually reading uh, a book on soil at the moment. Who knew that I would be like bedtime reading would be a book on soil, but they're doing it. It's called kiss the ground. And, um, they are doing an incredible job of taking something very complex of like carbon sequestration into soil and making it really quite playful and interesting. Um, so yeah, it's definitely not an ocean book, but it's, it, to me, it's a really good example of that. Um, yeah, I'm actually like struggling to think of a, of an ocean specific book. I think, um, I almost feel like my ocean, yeah, I, I guess the only thing that, that recently, um, I rewatched Fish People um because we're yeah we're looking to I'm working on World Ocean Day for schools at the moment and uh we're looking to see if we can screen it as part of that day and there's something about that film that is just (laughs) magical you know and it it speaks to those unique relationships that we all have with the sea and um yeah so not a book but a film like if you haven't watched that like you have to go watch it I I like I could watch that a thousand times over and I'll probably cry a thousand times over when I watch it. There's certain moments in it that are just really special, whether it's like Kimmy Werner, like just talking about her experiences underwater or, and I can't remember the name of the guy, but there's a guy in San Francisco who's running beautiful, like outreach stuff for, for kind of troubled youth. That's the bit that always makes me cry. Um, and then Dave Rastovich, where like he's just like a human dolphin when you're watching him body surf. It's just the most magical thing you've ever seen. So, yeah, that's probably my my like go-to for sure. Yeah, that's awesome. Fish people. Well, we'll link to that and Protect Blue and some other pieces that we talked about right now on our podcast site, oceanstateofmind.blue. And Lindsay, thank you again for spending the hour with us. And I can't wait till we catch up again soon. Amazing. Thank you so much. So good to chat. Wonderful. Have a great rest of your day. Yeah, we will do. You too. Bye. Wow. So thank you all for listening. That was Lindsay Hawken, founder of Protect Blue and the Wavemaker Collective. Next up, I am excited to share that we are traveling from the ocean to the mountaintops with Sasha Dingle and Jackson Hole. Sasha has spent much of her adult life as a professional skier and mountain biker, and now runs the Mountain Mind Project, where she has blended lessons from the mountains into a portfolio of mindfulness-based courses and coaching. The Ocean State of Mind meets the Mountain Mind. Next, we'll see you there.